This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Can't start too early on this piece. When I think about Scranton, we have so many folks here who are struggling to make ends meet today, tomorrow, and this week, and this month. And so I know we've, we've got to get we've got to get financial literacy more wired into to kids at a young age because they're unfortunately they're just they're not going to see it at home because their parents don't have bandwidth. So if we can reach the parents, if we can reach the kids early, we've got to start doing that. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batnuala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Mayor Paige Cognetti, the mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Prior to becoming mayor, Mayor Cognetti advised the Pennsylvania Auditor General on the oversight of public school districts and care for older adults. Mayor Cognetti also served in the Obama administration as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department, and prior to that, she worked as an investment advisor in New York City. Mayor Cognetti holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA in English Literature from the University of Oregon Clark Honors College. Mayor Cognetti, welcome. I'm so happy to be here, Marina. Thank you so much for joining us today. For listeners around the country and also outside the United States, perhaps you can give us a couple of fun facts about the city of Scranton where you are mayor. Absolutely. Scranton, Pennsylvania is just 100 miles west of New York City. So we're actually quite close to the eastern seaboard and Philadelphia, New York, actually only about four hours from Washington, D.C. and Boston. So we're really in a geographic hub up here in the Northeast, which is great for commerce since, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution for Scranton, but also is great, I think, for our future here in Scranton. We're really a nexus of a host of, of big cities here in the Northeast of the United States. And you might have heard of Scranton, Pennsylvania in the American version of the Office series. The Office is set here in Scranton. So we love that. NBC Peacock came in 2021 and awarded us the best hometown of the office. And we got a life-size Dundee statue. So you can find that here at City Hall, along with my personal Dundee that they awarded me the best hometown mayor of the office, which I think of as one of my most prized possessions. (laughs) In addition to that, President Joe Biden is from Scranton. He was born and raised in our Green Ridge neighborhood, moved when he was about 10 years old. So we also are the the best hometown of the current U.S. president. Fantastic. Also, a lot of history there, right, around coal and railroads. Yeah, we so we were built on steel and rail and anthracite coal. Anthracite coal is found here in the Wyoming Valley. So it started up really as an industrial hub. The city was one of the top 50 uh, largest cities in the United States at the turn of the 20th century and was about double the size and population that it is now. So at its peak, it was about 140,000. Now we're at about 80,000. So we we really have had, had some economic shocks and, and some tough times over the course of the 20th century. But really, and I know this is what this podcast is about, but it really is an interesting economic diversification story. There are lots of cities that that didn't 
diversify as well, I think, as Scranton. We still have lots of small and medium manufacturers here. They're not, you know, it certainly isn't the manufacturing hub it once was, but we still do have a lot of those and they're, they're family businesses. They're rooted rooted in generations of work. So it's at that piece. And then in terms of education, healthcare services, the city over the course of many decades, again, certainly has had its issues and, and tough economic conditions. The, the diversification of the economy that we have today is a tribute to people being pretty thoughtful. And I think to the family roots that people have put down over the course of you know, these last decades and really since the industrial revolution. So we've been weathered COVID better, I think, than a lot of cities of our size do in, in no small part to the fact that a lot of small businesses are family businesses that own their own real estate and high rent costs and having that burden, trying to figure out how to mitigate that while your business was closed was less of an issue for some of our businesses here. So we're definitely a family oriented community and see ourselves as a a big city that's very much a small town and we're on the move. So it's always fun to talk about Scranton. Now, you actually grew up in the state of Oregon, which is over the other side of the country. How did you end up running a city in Pennsylvania? And, and how did your career path evolve from being an investment advisor to serving in the US Treasury and ultimately running for mayor? Yeah, well, the I'll give you the story. The The upshot is that it all hinges on a sandwich. The way to my heart is through delicious food. So I'm from Oregon, based in Beaverton, Oregon, and went to the University of Oregon, spent a couple of years in Japan teaching English with the JEP program in the early 2000s. And then in 2005, I moved across the country to Washington, D.C. I have a dear friend who was working for the, one of the Oregon senators. And I wanted to work in government or politics. I wanted to, to really kind of be a part of changing the course of the country and ended up on a campaign up in this region. So my very first job, once I moved across the country in 2005, was a campaign up here in northeastern Pennsylvania. I made my way to this place called Caravia Fresh Foods, hoping to find something that wasn't a piece of pizza or a Subway sandwich I had been eating a lot of as a campaign staffer. And my now husband and father of our beautiful daughter made me that sandwich. And uh, there's a whole uh, whole <laughs> romance uh, story in this. But he and I, even though I left and worked on other campaigns, he and I were long distance from quite some time. So I kept a, a route in Scranton for in that way and then went on to work on the 2008 presidential campaigns. I worked after the Obama victory in 2008, I was very fortunate. I got the opportunity to work on the Obama-Biden transition. So spent November and December of 2008 at the at the main transition office and then had the great fortune to go work at U.S. Treasury in January 2009, which all of your listeners will, will remember fondly as <laughs> certainly not the end of the, the financial crisis, but very, very much an agonizing middle. So I worked there for three and a half years. I got to be a senior advisor for the Undersecretary for International Affairs and was able to be a junior staffer, these G20 meetings and G7 meetings, and go with the Undersecretary to, we spent a lot of time in Beijing, spent a lot of time in Brussels, uh, in Paris, in places like Brazil, got to really see see my my boss, Lael Brainerd, in action as the, the top economic diplomat of the United States. So was able to learn a tremendous amount from her and our colleagues understanding more about economics and finance, but also about politics, geopolitics, diplomacy, and how to how to work across teams, how to work across governments, how to work in your own government, 
you know, the complications of, of geopolitics in a global financial crisis and the politics of city council in Scranton, Pennsylvania, they, they're vastly different. They're also fairly similar when it really comes down to it. So I, I had a very, very fortunate experience being able to cut my teeth with such incredible policymakers. And I can't speak, I can't speak enough about my treasury days that they were incredibly formative for both my professional and my personal life. And then I got to go to Harvard Business School after that and wanted, after so much time in government, wanted to, to try the investment side and the private sector side and got to be in uh, Goldman's private wealth arm for a couple of years. And I really enjoyed my time there. I met great people and really enjoyed learning more uh, about investing and learning more about finance. But my my heart really is, well, my heart's in Scranton <laughs> in the form of moving to Scranton in 2016 to be with my now husband. My heart's just always been in public service. So by the time I we got to 2017, I had just, we just gotten married and a school board position opened up and the school district here had had massive problems. I mean, really criminal activity happening. And I put my hat in the ring for an appointment and got it and was able to spend 2018 really working through the reforms that needed to happen. A salient example for this audience would be that, you know, we've got a 80,000 person city, 10,000 kids in the school district and a financial advisor, a, a hang a shingle financial advisor who was charging a percentage on borrowing and had made $1.2 million in fees over the course of four years. I mean, it's just absurd. And nobody had kind of noticed, right? These things would just happen because nobody was watching and nobody was was understanding that the percentage means something and this contract is not is not what it should be. And it, it was really satisfying to be able to help in that way, but frustrating um, because you see you see what what terrible things can happen, uh, especially in the public sector um, and two people, right? Those that one point two million dollars. Certainly the advisor deserves something, but shave up a, a many of those, many of those dollars and put them back in the classroom. So my my passion for serving the public and my ability to, to apply some of what I've learned in my career was was really was really a special experience. And then went on to work for the Auditor General of the state and continue that same type of work that I'd done on the school district. But then cut to summer of 2019. And another fun example of things maybe not going so well in our region in terms of corruption, the mayor uh, was indicted on three counts of extortion and bribery and now serves in federal prison. So <laughs> so that was then my next decision was, well, is it should I run for mayor? Should I try to apply my pers- my pre- professional background to setting setting the government on the right track, like just getting back to good government, getting back to what government should be here for, which is serving people. And obviously in serving people, there's a host of things that have to go into that. But I ran for that office and it was a six-way special election. I was quite pregnant at the time, but came out with uh, came out with a victory, came out with 37% of the vote and got reelected again in the fall of 2021 with 75% of the vote. So it seems like people like what they're seeing with what we're doing here. Yeah, that's 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 amazing and terrific and a very brave step really running for election after, you know, so much time in in the corporate world and public service 
So when it comes to financial literacy, skills such as budgeting, you know, setting and st- sticking to a budget, and you just highlighted some of the important <laughs> some of the important factors in, in doing that, and also investing for the future, they're both important concepts in financial literacy. But now you're running an entire city. How do you think about budgeting versus investing for, for a city? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because the focus focus in a municipality, especially one of this size, budget, 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 and taxes. So when you're putting together the budget, when you're running through the the budget season in the fall, and you're trying to get a majority of a city council to approve your budget, or at least make changes that you can live with to your budget, it's very much about what what the the top line is, what what are the revenues, and what are the expenses. And there really isn't a lot of room for discussion about in investment, right? So we we've worked these first three years to really get the the budget in a in a place where we feel comfortable that it's stable. Of course, we came into office in January of 2020. Ten weeks in, we had COVID, so we had no idea what what revenues were going to look like. Was this going to be catastrophic? Were we going to have to lay off you know police officers and firefighters? We, there was so much uncertainty for really the first two years of our tenure that this 2023 budget that we just got through in December is the first time that I feel like we know what to expect. And we're still, you know, you, you can't ever think that you're going to know what uh, what your revenues are going to look like in any given year. But we're just, we think, settling on, on, on some sort of normalcy. So that takes an enormous amount of, of our bandwidth, right? And again, that's the budget and therefore the tax rates, whether they go up too much in people's minds, takes an enormous amount of the focus. But we also want to be thoughtful. And I'm hoping that now here in 2023, we've got three years behind us. We've got what we hope is the pandemic behind us for the most part, or at least the large economic impacts of the, of the pandemic behind us. Now I'm hoping we can focus more on what are more of the investments for the future? So within our, our processes and our operations, we've certainly been investing in smaller ways in the the, the way we buy fire apparatuses, the, the way that we finance our police cars, the way that we set our, our fund balance and our investment policies. But now's the time where we're really trying to figure out what, what are the investments we can make and what what is our ability to potentially go to the capital markets and make some of those investments? And what are the other tools we have out there that we can be making sure that there's more investment in the city and that some of the authorities and things that that we are not the city's entities, but they're related? What can they go be doing outside of the city proper work to be investing in the community? So it's really interesting. And the, the budget piece just takes up so much time. So I'm really hoping that we've We've got a good base there and we can now be focusing a little bit more on the future. So not unlike looking at your own personal budgeting and investing, right? Sort of obviously making sure the short term is right. secure, <laughs> but then thinking about the long term. Well, and I think it is a good parallel because you think about, and I think that's where we get to why certainly many women, certainly a lot of single moms, definitely a lot of a lot of people that but but everyone, like you, you're so focused on making sure that you have rent covered and that you've got transportation and childcare covered that you don't have the bandwidth to be thinking about investment. And so the investment stuff drops off and I've, you know that it's going to bite you later because you haven't done it, but you're so focused on what's in front of you. And that's a, you know, 
obviously that's a, a big macro problem, but it's something that we're trying to solve for with with a lot of our our grant offerings and and things that we're trying to to start up and do better here in the city is how can we make people here make those those job opportunities better, make it easier for to get childcare, make it easier to get to work, make sure that people have health care. If we can settle those basics, then you have an environment where people can focus on investment. They can focus on financial literacy. They can focus on that next thing. And ultimately, obviously, their quality of life now and in the future will improve. Yeah, exactly. So the gender wealth gap becomes very pronounced when it comes to retirement. There's a large gender retirement savings gap as well when it comes to women and their ability to adequately save for retirement. Now, you're actually involved in the running of the city's retirement plans from um, a governance perspective, at least. What are some of the lessons you've learned in ob- observing that? Yeah, the change, the positive changes here in the Scranton pension plans predate me. So I definitely give a nod to the financial folks that were here previously. So there's there's the investment piece and the management piece of the pensions. But it, it is an interesting thing to look at and something that we we have to keep correcting for because here in the city of Scranton, you have a gap. You have the clerical union, which is our administrative employees, historically, mostly women, far lower pension rates, right, than our police and fire, which are historically and still vastly the majority of them are, are male employees. So we still, we definitely have a gap right here in Scranton as an example of this the women go into the administrative jobs, the men go into the public safety jobs. And when they come out and retire, though, not only were their salaries obviously much higher during the course of their uh, their careers, but for retirement, I mean, the, the clerical pension is really not something you can live on, whereas that the police and fire pensions generally are. So there, there you see that as a microcosm, I think, of the gap there. And you go back to, you know, right now, a lot of baby boomers are retiring. I'm hoping that my generation and generations behind me are going to view every career path as an option and not just assume, well, I'm going to go work here. I'm going to go work in human resources because that's a girl job, right? Like I, I hope those days are over, but I do. And I think we're doing this podcast, right? Because this is still very much a live ball and something that we have to keep pushing for. Yeah, exactly. So you are obviously very comfortable with financial literacy. Your entire career has sort of been revolved around finances. Growing up, what do you think your childhood influences were on the way you think about money today? I think that our household was more focused on the the on the budget piece than the investment piece, if we distill it down to that. My parents grew up in rural Montana, and so we you know, was we're not from wealth. And so it was definitely like more of that budget. Do we have what we need? Are we but but in the best like do we are we saving enough for X, Y, and Z? It was it was a it was a little bit of a more of a household focus than an investment and future focus. And I think that's in part why once I got into the world and was seeing kind of how other families ran their finances, I was interested in that. And that led me, I think ultimately to to want to go into wealth management. And, and into the investment side and learn more. So really you were seeking to learn more in, in that area it was something that interested you from a very young age. Yeah, definitely. And I, I worked at a bank when I was a, when I was a kid. My, okay. I was a bank teller and so I was around, I was around it a, a lot yeah. and interested in, interested in, in how, how the economy works and how, how people make things happen um, and what that, definitely what that looks like. It was a great, being a bank teller as a, teenager was a great exposure to the breadth of an economy, right? You're 
in your own neighborhood and you don't think necessarily about all the different businesses that make it make up an economy. But when you cash everybody's checks all day, when you take all those commercial deposits all day, you realize how complicated it is. And I, I enjoyed that from you know the time I was 16. And that's something that I still enjoy today, right? I love every time we have an announcement about business grants. Right now we have these micro grants and it's what's so great. We had a one a couple months ago where we had, I think, five and it was axe throwing startup. It was a refillery. So you go take your own bottle to get the soap or the shampoo. So you're, you're, you're being ecologically responsible. Then we had a bar and we had a pastry shop. I mean, just the diversity of all of the businesses was so cool. And I think that's just something that something that I love about, I think somehow I've been able to find that in most of my careers. <laughs> Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew when, when you were younger when it comes to financial literacy? I, I definitely wish I had taken more courses earlier. I remember a good friend of mine in high school said, we really need an AP finance class here. And I was like, that'd be great. But we didn't have it. And I was busy doing other things. We didn't push for it. We didn't get it. But some an AP finance course would have been very helpful from that, like that early age. So I, I wish I should have taken Chris's cue and we should have fought harder for that. But that that would have been a, a really good thing. I think that you, know, you can't start too early on this piece. When I think about Scranton, we have so many folks here who are struggling to make ends meet today, tomorrow, and this week, and this month. And so I know we've, we've got to get we've got to get financial literacy more wired into to kids at a young age because they're unfortunately they're just they're not going to see it at home because their parents don't have bandwidth. So if we can reach the parents, if we can reach the kids early, we've got to start doing that. So an AP finance course would be a course that you would take in high school in the later years. Right. School. Right. That was, yeah, it was a high school, would have been a high school. Yeah. Yep. So you have a three-year-old daughter. What are the main lessons that you think are going to be important for her? I hope that we're in a position now where there are no gendered careers, you know, there aren't male careers and female careers. And I, you know, I, I'm the first female mayor here in Scranton. So I, I think I hope that I literally embody That's fantastic. <laughs> um, what I'm hoping for her. I'm hoping that, you know, she's three now that by the time she's 13, that, you know, it, it it's, it's just more normal and we're, we're getting there, but it's taking a longer amount of time. You could, it happens frequently that someone will say like, oh, the mayor's here and a child or an adult will say, well, where? And that they're like, well, she's right there. And they're kind of, they, they take a beat, right? They, they still, mayor is still a man's job in our, at least in America is still viewed as a man's job what, and not on purpose by people. It's just, it's just kind of still that. So we have a lot, we do have a lot of work to do. I work with a lot of other women mayors and we laugh. We often you know, have the same experience in that way. So really hoping that, I mean, of course, not hoping, working, actively working, to, to make that, that there's no, there's no man career. There's no woman career. There's no, it's just careers and what you can do anything you want, but I don't want to, I'm not going to be the kind of mom. I don't think who's just going to use a throwaway term. Like you can be anything you want. Like we're going to, we're going to do more than that. Right. We're going to keep pushing and we're not going to ignore the reality of the fact that gender based discrimination still happens. And we're not going to ignore the fact that it's still a fight. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat things either, but certainly we'll, we'll keep will keep myself surrounded by different people with different views from different from different areas of the country and the world and keep reading different books and, and make sure that she also has lots of different influences around her so she can know that there are no gendered careers, but also be eyes wide open that 
there might still be some some hurdles set up by the time she gets there. Well, you're fantastic. You're a fantastic role model. So finally, what advice do you have for people raising and educating girls when it when it comes to financial literacy? Yeah, I I mean she's only three and I started at least at least I started her 529 plan, which in the US is the the college savings plan. So I feel like I was mom of the year last year on that. Um, <laughs> but I, I think but with that and with that 529 example, you know, not everyone knows that those 529s exist. And so my job, and I think the job of me as her mom is to make sh- obviously make sure that she's got her account set, but that we and I and my role at my my personal life, my professional life, my, my kind of the way that I give back, that we are going out and making sure other people get that opportunity too, right? This isn't a, these shouldn't be secrets. This isn't like, oh, we have this and we know this. We really need to be making sure that everyone grows up with equal opportunity, equal information. Uh, equal access to banking and finance. And that is a tall order and something that we are far, far more behind on than I think most of us want to admit. Mayor Paige Cognetti, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongirls.com.